This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain, our family and supporters, and the health professionals who care for us. I'm Paul Evans, and this edition of Airing Pain is funded with grants from the James Weir Foundation, the Hospital Saturday Fund and the Erskine Cunningham Hill Trust. And we're grateful for the continuing support of the British Pain Society. Realistically, we've had three years of COVID. We're facing a very different situation now. This offers an enormous amount of potential input. And I see with this and with the idea of a refresh, perhaps a better chance to get a more firm footing with that. In the two or so years when COVID-19 was at its most critical, well, hopefully anyway, the face-to-face relationship between doctors and patients was one of the first casualties. Now, with restrictions relaxed, have we returned to the status quo, or has what was developed at breakneck speed, necessity being the mother of invention, led to new working practices? So what did we learn that would actually improve the management of chronic pain into the future? Dr Cathy Price is a consultant in pain medicine with the University Hospital Southampton NHS Foundation Trust. It's going to take quite some time, I think, before we truly learn and understand what the pandemic has taught us. I feel, first of all, that we can implement change at a very rapid rate when we need to. So we had to go from delivering face-to-face services to everything being online in a couple of weeks. We learnt from that how to use a lot of technology that probably would have taken years to introduce. And we also learned what patient preferences were with that. When we implemented this locally, what we learnt was what we could safely manage at a slower rate and what you absolutely needed to continue delivering. So we took a really evidence-based approach to deciding who to prioritise, but made sure that the people who we couldn't see at that moment were safe and checked up on them. We also looked at what was the impact of remote consultations at all different aspects of the patient journey, and that in the service, we found that really the education sessions um, that we invite people to could be very safely delivered online, and in fact, people preferred them because they didn't have to drive and didn't have to sit with other people because they were afraid of picking up bugs themselves and it was much more convenient. Then people like me, my medical appointments mostly didn't need to be delivered in a clinic, so that saves people sitting around waiting for hours. And then we also learned that the vast majority of psychological interventions could be safely delivered online. What we also learned was that it wasn't a great idea to try and do rehabilitation online because people need that face-to-face reassurance and modelling of what needs to be done. What do you mean by that? So to understand what a movement looked like and how to do this safely, we really needed to see it in action because many people learn by doing. So the physiotherapy side particularly said, we're not doing this um, remotely any minute more than we have to. So in terms of delivery of a service, we learnt quite a lot. In terms of impact, then the referrals from primary care, primary care, as you know, had to reform and reshape many, many times. And when we were merging services and splitting them apart, trying to do different cohorts, I think many people got lost in that process. 
it was difficult to get through to general practices. And so what we learned was that the primary care services needed to be different. You needed to have better access than just remotely and that trying to do it all, a lot of triage, was sometimes not in patients' best interests. The other thing that we've learnt has been the intense loneliness that people have experienced. When you phoned people in the middle of the pandemic, they were just glad to hear a voice and glad to do something. I would say that dropped off very quickly as soon as everybody could get out, but it's really left its mark. So that one of the biggest impacts that we all know about, I think, is that impact on people's mental well-being, emotional health, I think is going to be with us for a long time. We've been fortunate, I think, to, at the same time in primary care, be able to employ more staff that can support people's well-being. For example, social prescribers, health and well-being staff, primary care mental health workers. So there is more infrastructure, but... What I've learned is that all needs really careful management and grouping and leadership to make it work for patients. I think the online consultations, you think there may be a future in that or there is a future in that. Putting my glass half full about the COVID epidemic, if you tried to get that through in a non-epidemic time, it would take you donkey's ears and there would be so much opposition to it yeah but largely it has worked and people like it yes there are definitely some people who it's very bad for (laughs) it's about trying to get that balance then isn't it are you absolutely right though we would never have done it at the rate of change that we did but it was something I thought really was needed and it had been needed for a long time really I'm not sure, I think it's terribly fair to ask people to get on two sets of buses to come all the way and then sit for an hour in a seat. By that time, I think they're probably not up to processing very much at all. I'd much rather do things in the comfort of people's homes, if at all possible. What are the downsides of that? Well, firstly, that's um, technology. Not everybody can grapple with technology. Even if you provide iPads, which we managed to get, not everybody can use them. People who've got communication difficulties, and I don't particularly mean people who are speaking a different language, because actually that was relatively straightforward. More people who may have sensory loss or language is difficult really struggle. So you really need to be sure that people can understand and are finding it useful and not just being polite. You mentioned physiotherapy. A doctor can work out a heck of a lot just by watching them walk from the door to the seat in the consultation room. It absolutely can't be done online, can it? You're absolutely right. And I think that's the bit that sometimes is missing. So that's where you have to allow space to be able to speak to people, physiotherapists especially. A lot of it is on observation. That's Dr Cathy Price. I want to take you back now to an edition of Airing Pain we made in the autumn of 2019, so just a few months before COVID-19 raised its ugly head. Experts by experience working together in pain management programmes was a workshop running in parallel with the British Pain Society's Pain Management Programme Special Interest Group National Conference in Bristol, in which patients and practitioners from four different pain management centres around the UK shared their experience of working together. You can still listen to that edition of Airing Pain, it's number 119, at Pain Concerns website, which is painconcern.org.uk. But here's a flavour. Unemployment is one thing, but not being employable is a totally other story. 
It's a case of you are useless. And this happened around about the same time when our lovely former Prime Minister, David Cameron, came up with the word scroungers. And here I was, on benefits, a scrounger. If you just help one person, it's so worthwhile. I had a lady and she was in such distress and anxiousness when I first met her. And all she wanted someone was to listen to her and feel validated that her pain is real. It really is there. And I turned up week one, two, and then in week three, that gentleman there who's trying to hide, Rob, who you all know, changed my life with five simple words. I still live with pain. And it's so rewarding if you see someone who is down here to suddenly be in a better place. It's worth it just for that one person. I'm going to live with this for the rest of my life, but I'm going to have a nice life. I just do things differently. And that's what pain management has done for me. The best part, though, is being on the team. You feel so valued. If only I had had some of this information earlier in my pain journey, why didn't I get this earlier? I might not have been here in this state if I'd had information earlier. To those considering volunteering, I wholeheartedly encourage you to get involved. It is so rewarding and so fulfilling. Very best of luck to you all, and please remember to be kind to yourself. That was an excerpt from an earlier edition of Airing Pain, number 119. And as I mentioned, you can listen to the full programme at the Pain Concern website. And the voices were of participants in the Experts by Experience working together in pain management programmes workshop just a few months before we were hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, a lot of water's gone under the bridge since then, to put it mildly. The workshop was facilitated by consultant clinical psychologist Dr Nick Ambler of the North Bristol NHS Trust. He and his team were working to create a more personalised form of management and support for people living with chronic pain. Two years on from that workshop, he and colleagues shared their experience with delegates at the 2022 British Pain Society annual scientific meeting. We'd convened the Pain Management Programme conference in Bristol and I was very keen to run a workshop that would showcase the involvement of service users in service delivery and service organisation, and that's what we did. We had a whole day of it there. But it was all about patients. It was all about the patients, yes. And why was it so good? Well, I think it's a refreshing change to take part in a pain science meeting run by the organisation that is m most represents the practitioners working in the area. It's nice to hear the involvement of patients alongside that kind of meeting. Very much in tune with what we're trying to achieve as health professionals, but as partners, rather than in the more traditional way of thinking about the work as being, we kind of develop the technologies of pain care and we have recipients of that pain care lining up to try it out. We don't think in that way in pain management work. And that felt like a chance to more appropriately reflect that evolution taking place in the involvement of service users. I wasn't aware that there were many healthcare professionals there. I know there was you, there was Martin Dunbar. There were probably about half a dozen in the room, but I guess our target was really to talk more to the patients. So my main focus really was to try and persuade others who'd been involved themselves or who were curious about it to come along and hear 
from people who are involved in delivering services in different shapes and forms in different sites around the country to hear about how they do that and whether or not it works. But it's not just about people with pain helping people with pain. It's people with pain helping professionals manage people with pain. It's supposed to be a partnership. In my profession, when you're learning about consultation methods, one of the tricks of reflecting on how well you're getting on is to think within yourself, what's this feel like at the moment, this discussion I'm having with this client? Does it feel like a wrestling match or a dance? To try and have that picture and approximate where your position is, because if it feels like a wrestling match, it's probably not going very well and you need to be thinking about doing something different. If it feels like dancing, then you're in tune with each other and that's a fair reflection of a process rolling forward in the right way. So with that in mind, the way in which we work in partnership with patients, it should feel like the organisation and the delivery of pain services is like a dance where it's good to see the people who need our help and to be working out what they need and how it's suited best to them with them rather than to be second-guessing that. I guess the idea is that patients leave with a smile on their face and doctors are left with smiles on their face. Well, that's a big ask, Paul. I'm not sure about that, <laughs> living with pain. I would like to think that, but a sense of feeling heard, definitely. The reverse, where somebody's coming away, maybe with a list in their pocket that didn't quite work out or they didn't feel that they were able to express themselves or that they've been patted off. Those things are quite commonplace nowadays. And, and, and with healthcare under pressure, there's a real risk of that worsening, not improving. But it is worth it for health professionals to focus in on how well they're getting on in a sense of finding common ground and hearing what people want, changing the way in which they approach things to try and smooth out that kind of discussion so it doesn't feel quite so tense. But I think tension is still prevalent in healthcare consultations. Well, we're at the British Pain Society Annual Scientific Meeting 2022. What were you telling the great and good of the scientific world about that? <laughs> if I tried to tell them, I don't think I'd get very far. I'd been asked to present something, along with my colleague Nicola Bryan, about service user involvement in delivering different kinds of pain service, but for both of us at the core of that are pain management programs and the way in which working in partnership with people who had been former patients but had volunteered to come back, taken part in training, received some supervision to develop them into the role, how that's different, what experiences that you would have as a health professional if you embrace the idea of that, what you need to put into it, what's expected of you, some clarity about how it works rather than just trying to sell the idea of it. Uh, that's what we were talking about today. And I hope it was somewhat provocative. But my intention was to say, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs, which is an old expression about, you know, there are crunch moments as you try and move things forward. The issue, really, of something which we have a strong sense of commitment to that is valuable but has yet to really take off in pain services and more generally in healthcare. Well, the title of your talk was Harnessing Patients to Deliver Care. Now, that word deliver 
is quite an important word. Cal, now, before we get to the delivery, take the harness off, which is what I did at the beginning of the talk. I don't think harnessing anybody is a good idea. And we switched the title to Working in Partnership to Deliver Services. So do you find deliver is a bit of a provocative thought? Well, the word deliver doesn't involve me as a patient. You talk about breaking eggs. Who are the eggs here? Colleagues. <laughs> so do you think that deliver is the wrong word? I wish I hadn't mentioned about breaking eggs. I don't want anybody to get broken. Um, delivery does reflect a sort of sense of somebody having something to give and there being a passive recipient. So no, in that sense, it's not a good word. But we did in the talk uh, cover at some length the transition from the traditional kind of sort of bring me your problems and I'll fix them encounter that exists in the relationship between doctors or health professionals generally and patients to one of shared decision-making, joint exploration, a sense of trying to deal with the things that the person most wants to work on and then reaching decisions through a shared understanding. Those traditional views, I mean, they're traditional and they still exist, whereas doctor sits there, patient sits here, doctor, I've got a bad shoulder, fix it. It takes education for the doctor, but also for the patient. Let's assume the doctor wants to change things, but how do you change the patient viewpoint? I'm imagining here a young practitioner and that this is happening at primary care level. And so I'm thinking that from the doctor's point of view, there's a little voice in his or her head going, why do you keep asking me that? Because you know that I can't. That's not a friendly thing to say in the consultation. And instead, I'm not sure you're asking me the right question here, Paul, because, and I mean this in the imaginary consultation, isn't it three months since you last asked me that? We've been round the roundabout of trying to find a means of fixing this pain. And I had been thinking ahead to our discussion today about how we look sideways at that, kind of differently. If you can bear with me for a few minutes, I'll explain a bit more about what I mean. Would you like me to do that? The few minutes is the problem. Again, a mantra for those undertaking training around this. This is about spending time to save time. Think back to where we were a moment ago. This is a repeat consultation. This is a revolving door process. This person has been in the room, sitting in the chair, asking for help for this injured shoulder, whatever's going on with the shoulder, several times previously, I suspect. And there hasn't been any sense of moving forward with that. We need to try a different route. So it would be a matter of trying to divert into a direction that's probably more productive. Pain Concern has done research and is continuing research into patient-doctor consultations, and they've mm -hmm. developed their navigator tool that puts patients and doctors on the same plane. Mm. The doctor has to do his or her homework, and the patient has to do his or her homework also. So a preparedness to have a different kind of conversation is ideally better set up if both sides know what that change of direction is. And the tool can help it from the patient's side. And training in the consultation process in a different format 
on the health professional side is also a useful idea. If one or other really doesn't get it, it's much more of a struggle. Well, there is an elephant in this room and we're going to have to talk about it, and that is COVID. In the workshop we met, it was 2019, three years ago. We've had COVID since then. Now, how has that affected what you were trying to put into place in 2019? Well, it was a very unsettling period, that's for sure. In the beginning, many of us were diverted into other priority areas to deal with the pandemic to deal with the pressures that existed within the hospital. All outpatient activity was blocked for some time. Many pain clinics really had to shut down. And the concern at that stage was, where would we pick up as we got going again? But even before that happened, there was a push within those of us running pain management programs to go online and try to meet the demand in a different way. And I think with that, the beginnings of something different had, had emerged in extreme circumstances. So increasingly, we were able to go back to more traditional roles. I think within about a year of the onset of the pandemic hitting the health service, we were up and running with our online courses well before then. And they became something which I guess we weren't under pressure to understand particularly well beforehand, but now have become very much part of the array of things that we do. And we're in a different phase now where we're able to think again about getting going on an outpatient basis. We've got a backlog of work to pick up with. The consequences of that are going to play out for quite some time. But we've jumped forward in our understanding about access that is made available and by a means of working with people that's that's evolved in a different direction. Now, I'm not going to tell you that face-to-face -face working comes behind is less preferable to working online. I don't believe that for one minute, but I'm really glad that we've learned about how to approach this in an alternative way. And I think, if nothing else, right now in the NHS, we're going through a refresh phase, looking again at how to do what we can do with a load of work to catch up with. And it demands new thinking and reasoning and that's what I find encouraging about what has been a very difficult situation, the refresh. I would guess that one of the issues with that word refresh is that everything we learned in the last two years, that was just a temporary thing, back to the old ways. I can't imagine that's going to happen. I don't see evidence of that around. There has been this opening to improve access. So we have, for example introduced first contacts being by Zoom if possible. So it's possible to come into our service with a face-to-face -face contact initially, but the initial screening is done in Zoom calls by preference. That's enabled us to pick up more quickly with people. I think one of the initial things that you experience as you, you're coming into the service is the sense of a long wait. Well, that's less the case because of what we've learned about online consultations. But we've blended that with face-to-face follow-up where that's possible. And we've continued with a segment of service which is not face-to-face, -face, open to those people that would prefer to approach it in that way. So I think new stuff has come out of this. And grim as it's been, it has shunted things forward with a lurch. We're still under pressure, but we're doing things differently now. And I don't think we can go back. I think the word or the question that came up in your talk earlier was disheartened. Are mm. you disheartened? Not at all. There's a sense of a lot of effort being expended 
I might have felt set back because today I'm talking about things that you and I were working on three years ago when we last met in Bristol. And in a sense, I can't see that there's been a big jump forward in the involvement of former patients in service delivery in the way that I would have hoped and envisioned at that stage. But realistically, we've had three years of COVID. We're facing a very different situation now. This offers an enormous amount of potential input. And I see with this and with the idea of a refresh, perhaps a better chance to get a more firm footing with that. I was at one of the talks this morning about um, virtual reality and how that might have been incorporated talking to Owen Williamson afterwards about the slow pace with which something that I think is really quite helpful for acute pain, the slow pace with which that's moved forward. And he was reassuring the sense, he said, you know, you need to understand, on average, a new piece of technology that's going to help things along clinically can take, on average, 17 years to be implemented. And I said, well, then I shouldn't feel disheartened, really. I am accustomed to taking the ideas and sort of rehashing them but also with a, a new sense of the change situation to continue to draw attention to this as a huge potential asset of volunteers being alongside health professionals working in partnership for delivering services or I guess we need another term for that but the broader term is actually co-production which is the idea that you're creating something you're finding a way with something And to take that forwards in a sense that that is part of the way out of this difficult situation, it's an evolution that naturally takes a lot of time. I feel encouraged by that. There's still plenty of work to do. That's consultant clinical psychologist Dr Nick Ambler of the North Bristol NHS Trust's pain management programme. He and his team guest-edited issue number 78 of Pain Matters magazine about delivering pain management through the COVID-19 pandemic – Get details from Pain Concern's website, which is painconcern.org.uk, and you can download all editions of Airing Pain from there and find a wealth of support and information material about living with and managing chronic pain, including more details about this edition of Airing Pain. Now, as in every edition of Airing Pain, I like to remind you of the small print that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on Airing Pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. They're the only people who know you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. It's important for us at Pain Concern to have your feedback on these podcasts so that we know that what we're doing is relevant and useful and to know what we're doing well or maybe not so well. So do please leave your comments or ratings on whichever platform you're listening to this on, or the Pain Concern website, of course. That'll help us develop and plan future editions of Airing Pain. Back to this edition of Airing Pain. We heard Dr Cathy Price earlier talking about how pain teams have adapted to working through COVID-19 restrictions. So what would she like to keep from those two years? I'd like to keep the flexibility. Our team meetings are so much better since they've been online haven't had grumpy people turning up at 8.30 in the morning, haven't fought their way through two hours of traffic, for example. I'd very much like to keep that flexibility. When people have been booked in face-to-face and I can't see why, I've said, what would you have wanted? And they've said, well, we'd be perfectly happy at home. So I think we need to really step back and think. I'd like to keep a lot of that technology. 
I fear that we'll be sold, oh, it's too expensive and we won't have as good access as we have had. I'd like to keep all of the different ways that we've communicated with people. I've got much better at text messaging, sending links, doing video consultations, much, much better. And people have as well. They've been really open to it. I'd like to keep that openness, I think. How do you make sure that all the good things aren't rolled back? What we've done is done an evaluation to really make sure that you've asked people how it's gone, what they felt, you learn from that, and you keep asking again and again. Look to see whether you've got lots of complaints, but also use patient feedback as well and ask the right questions. Cathy Price. Going back to that experts by experience working together in pain management programmes workshop just before COVID hit, Nick Ambler. The person that hit the right tone at the beginning who works with us in Bristol Primrose Granville, who I thought did a really inspiring talk about how she had found it incredibly useful, first of all, taking part in a programme, changing her life, and then continuing to do that. So I have to say, one of my main memories from the period of time when we were all locked in, watching TV, which is pretty much all I did when I wasn't at work, seeing the local news, but seeing Primrose out on the street in one of the suburbs of Bristol where the uptake of vaccinations was very low, stopping people in the street, persuading them to have jabs. And my immediate reaction was, well, isn't that just Primrose? She's phenomenal. But then, oh my goodness, I don't want to lose her. Somebody's found her and picked her up and taken her away from our service. Immediately felt quite defensive about that. But um, it kind of shows you the sort of people that come forward and they know the impact they can have. She was interviewed on TV about why you're doing this. And she said, well, I've realised how important this is. And if I can use the way I present things to persuade others to do it, I'm going to do that. I identify with these people. It was a poorer suburb of Bristol in the sense of average income. So I need to talk to them. I'm the one that should be talking to them. And doesn't that nail it, actually? That's exactly right. That totally reflects the way in which we became involved with Primrose in trying to improve the way we do things in the pain service. And that is patients being involved within a team. Being part of the team, Paul. Nick Ambler. And so we let Primrose Granville part of that team have the last words in this edition of Airing Pain. I have been on two pain management courses, so I went to one in the old days. That course didn't do anything for me. It was purely instructional. Um, I felt like I was in high school again, being forced to do maths, which I hate, and I got nothing from it whatsoever. Absolutely nothing. Fast forward a couple of years, anybody know Dr. Greenslade? Yep, so he convinced me to go on a second one and we had a really long conversation. It ranged from articles in The Guardian to articles in The Sun where he was actually trying to convince me to go on a second course and I was like, "Uh uh-uh, no, I'm not doing that. Give me the magical pill and I'll be fine. Give me surgery, give me anything. And he's like, no, you've had the surgery. You do need to go on another pain management course. I promise you it's different. I didn't believe him. And I turned up week one, two... And then in week three, that gentleman there who's trying to hide, Rob, who you all know, changed my life with five simple words. I still live with pain. Those were the five simple words that literally changed my entire life.
And then he started talking about all kinds of things that he did, and I'm like, I was stuck on I Still Live With Pain. And I remember leaving the room with my pain friend, and we used to give a lot of trouble in the course. Yeah, we were the talkative ones. And, and we were sitting in my car, because I was taking her home that evening, and we were like, so we can do stuff with this pain, because the pain was controlling my life. And one of the things I wanted to do, my, my only goddaughter lived 146 miles up the M4 and the A13 in deep Essex. Why her parents choose to live there, I don't know. And I wanted to be able to get in my car and do the journey from beginning to end and just not stop. And he spoke about going down the M5 to Cornwall and how he had to stop several times. And I was like, oh my God, stop several times? Who does that? But I heard him out and it was like, wow. So he changed my life with his examples, but he got me with those five words and I thought, so when we, you know the end where they give you that wonderful questionnaire that we all love to fill out, the big long one that looks like an epistle, and you got to that last question that said, do you think you could volunteer here, or something like that, and I consulted with my friend, and she said, oh, I'm not doing it, it's too much, and I said, I'm going to try, and I ticked the box, and they phoned me the following week, and I was like, they don't hang about, so... <laughs> I kind of wanted to see what it was like from the other side, how I could impact somebody else, the way Rob had impacted me with his simple example, his simple words, his, I still live in pain, but I actually have a life that I enjoy. And I'm glad I met Rob, because I'm glad I volunteered, because I felt valuable. I was turning up on Wednesday, and when I wasn't well, they missed me. And that's my why. I feel like I'm doing something that's, that's worthwhile to someone else. Who would have thought the words, I still live with pain, would mean anything to anyone? I didn't think it would mean anything to me, but it does now, because it was the moment that I decided, I'm going to live with this for the rest of my life, but I'm going to have a nice life after that. I just do things differently, and that's what pain management has done for me. The best part, though, is being on the team. You feel so valued. You feel so valued. It's a case of somebody wants you there. For me, being that messenger is a lot more important than the message.